You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Hi, welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker, and I'm joined on today's show by my colleague, John Harney. Hey, John. Hey, Bob. The podcast is back after many failed attempts to schedule a podcast. That's right. The podcast (laughs) is back. Uh, So on today's show, John is going to give us a debrief on his latest history and video game course at Center College. After that, we'll talk about John's playthrough of Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, And this talk will include spoilers, Uh, so if you are worried about having the narrative elements of that game ruined for you, Mm -hmm. uh, come back and listen once you have finished the game. Uh, And we'll wrap things up today by talking a bit about what else we've been playing, uh, history game or otherwise. Uh, So with that intro out of the way, John, uh, I turn to you. Uh, Tell us about your recent history and games course at Center. Sure. So we talk about this. I've actually been teaching it every couple of years uh, or every year for a couple of years now. So some people who listen um, will be familiar with it. But just very, very quickly, I can have anywhere between 15 and 30 people in the class and I put them into groups of four or five people. And I basically tell them, listen, you've got to make a game and write a portfolio alongside it that will kind of outline the historical work that went into this, like the kind of sources you use and how you and uh, I strongly encourage people to use either Twine or RPG Maker. Mm-hmm. Twine, which is at twinery.org, is an excellent and very easy way to get into writing what used to be called interactive fiction games. And RPG Maker basically kind of spits out an early 90s Super Nintendo top-down JRPG type format. Um, that limits things, but um, Center Term is a 16-day intensive term where I have them every day for three hours. So you can get a lot done in Center Term, but there's only so much you can do. And in my particular teaching environment, I just can't rely on there being enough computer scientists in the in the classroom or whatever. Sure. So, you know, we do it that way. Um, and this particular year was what's called a first year studies course at, Cent- at Center College. And what that means is this was only open to first years. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's actually it is quite interesting. It was conceived long before I got here. Sure. It, it, so it's actually an FYS, so first year seminar. And so the idea is you're trying to you're supposed to craft very specific classes that first years would find particularly helpful. I didn't find it hard to convert mine over to a first year idea because we do lots of presentations and we do lots of these kind of things they want you to do with the first years. They kind of want the first years to get more comfortable with with presenting and thinking about work in different kinds of ways and everything else. It creates a different vibe in the room, though, because they've only been in college for a couple of months, really. And it's usually a very, very positive vibe. Um, but also you're kind of, if I'm talking about, you know, interpreting, in our case, video games, but any kind of popular culture, movies, what have you, under an historical lens, it's usually the first time they've ever really got stuck into that. Wow. Um, yeah. Usually. Yeah. And so that, and I, I would I, imagine, yeah. yeah, I would imagine that would be tough. But at the same time, you know, you do put them in groups. So I'd yes. imagine for the final project that that creation of kind of their own historical narrative would actually be more helpful because it's not just them on their own. Like you would have, like, say, in a senior level upper division seminar, it's them in a group kind of figuring this stuff out. Together. Right. 
no exactly right and then you actually the nice thing about it is one of the things that i do so we have these three hour meetings and i always devote one of the three hours to basically group work that i'm present for mm-hmm. and it's nice because you can be a part of it if they want you to be part of it or you can also observe it and i tell them that it's like i'm gonna be kind of you know watching you guys and making sure you're doing okay <laughs> and listening in and you hear some of the debates and stuff so it's funny every year there kind of kind of tends to be a theme and this year world war ii was kind of the theme we had a one group did a twine game set all around choice you know mm. um are you going to be recruited by rommel and others into like an operation valkyrie type thing mm. or will you become voted hitler youth and later on hitler kind of you know um secondary um the other group talked uh basically based their game around um a spy who was kind of active in world war ii like an actual historical figure nice. went from there and then the third group this is kind of one of the interesting things about it um talking as you were just now bob about how do they manage this and everything else they bounced around a lot and their initial idea was mccarthyism they were just really interested in mccarthyism mm-hmm. uh, you know um and this notion of how you know you can create like this is now the truth and we're going to go after you if you don't believe it and everything else and then one of the students in particular got really interested in Robert McNamara's in retrospect, mm. which is a Robert McNamara who was Secretary of Defense um, under Kennedy and then brief and under Johnson for a little while. And he wrote this very, very famous um, memoir about the yes. Vietnam War. Where he basically yes. says that it was bad. And fun story. Years later, I went to Ho Chi Minh City and went to the Vietnam War Museum in Ho Chi Minh City. And they have it under a glass case with a plaque that basically says, look, even the Americans admit they were wrong and that we were right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, and he just got really interested in that. And then they got interested in the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm like, God, they're getting interested in lots of stuff here. <laughs> That's dangerous. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it can be very, very dangerous. And then um, and they kind of pulled it together. And the really fun thing, what I really liked about it was... Um, the way they pulled it together was they made it all post-apocalyptic that uh, that the nuclear fallout did happen, um, oh, and, that, wow. and, and that basically a McCarthyite uh, state structure emerged in the wake of the nuclear collapse, and it was great. And I was so proud of them. I was proud of all three groups. Obviously, they were all fantastic. But that was just they embraced the creative side of the project thing, and um, it was great. I was really happy. And if you have any interest in any of this stuff, I get I got them to post. Each group had to post a quick blog update every day just to kind of talk about what they were doing or things that were interesting in them. And so if that's of any interest to you at all, you can go to sites.center.edu slash history and video games. Uh, Center is spelled C-E-N-T-R-E because the college was founded before um, Webster's Dictionary was published. Uh, so sites.center.edu slash history and video games. They did a great job. I was very proud of them. I was very proud of them. Fantastic. Well, that's great that some of their work is available online to people who are interested. And, you know, this is kind of a ongoing topic that we've had here at History Respond of developing uh, and talking about these courses uh, that bring together history and games. And John, I want to ask you, I mean, you know, one of the things that we had both, you know, worked on, you know, when we were kind of each doing our own courses on this topic is that, you know, it was often difficult to come up with a kind of a content list, a reading list yeah. uh, for these courses. Have you found that to be any easier? <sighs> I mean, can you talk a little bit about that process for this most recent iteration of your sure. course? Sure. You know, I have not found, I wish I could tell you it got easier. I really have never felt very comfortable. I'm still using an edited volume called Playing with the Past that I know that mm-hmm. you're with Bob, and we've met a few of the authors who contributed to that. There has yet to be something that kind of comes along to kind of shake that up in a meaningful way for me. Um, one of the things that's happened more broadly in my teaching, I've noticed, so slightly related to this, 
I teach a world history class and textbooks for world history classes are a real pain in the behind. Absolutely. At least of which, because even if you find one you like, which is itself a massive task, or you, you find one you can live with is a better way of putting it. Um, <laughs> they re-release it two years later, you know, and, and they move stuff around. And like I had a primary source reader I really liked. Um, and they just, they'll re-release it every two years and they'll change just enough that your students have to buy the new version and it's mm-hmm. gotten more expensive and it's a really frustrating thing. So I've switched to doing a lot of scanned, you know, within copyright law and everything else, obviously scanning stuff and sharing it with students online. And so I've kind of fallen backwards into something that some academics call like a living syllabus or an online syllabus and stuff. I kind of I didn't set out to do that. I just kind of decided, well, at this point, I kind of know what I want to share. So I'll share that. So that's kind of what has happened um, in that I have flexibility because an ongoing tension as well is, well, maybe we could talk about Nazism historically for two days and then talk about Wolfenstein. Yeah. Yeah. And so what has kind of happened is I have one or two moments like that in the class where we'll do that. We'll spend maybe maybe a whole day because it's a big three hour day. They had readings and we'll talk about the Nazis or about representations of Asian Americans. And then the next day we'll play Wolfenstein or Sleeping Dogs and talk about it. Um, And it's but it's still kind of a mess, honestly, because I kind of I've always had ideas that I would I would make the whole term that like two days of history, one day of video games or one day of this, one day of that. Um, But I've ended up having like phases where I do it and phases Mm. where I don't. And part of the reason is the reading. The other thing I've done is I've embraced critical writing now, uh, critical cultural commentary in video games so i will share articles with them that i particularly like um and the state of play which is a nice collection of video games featuring some very good writers like ian bogost is in there evan narcisse is in there um just a couple of really really good um just pieces of cultural commentary on games i go ahead and give them that mm-hmm. and, and and we read that towards the end of the term and we kind of talk about you know how are we talking about games now that we've spent you know 10 class days, you know, 30 hours deconstructing how historians can engage with games. Now, how do we talk about them? And as you know, Bob, and as listeners probably know, it's a huge impulse when history respond as well. I, I, I really stress to them, we have to meet people where they live here. You know, there's just no yeah. point. There's no point us getting frustrated that um, people aren't listening to what I know the truth is of World War II. Like if, if Wolfenstein is out there and it exists, we've got to go there and we've got to figure out why it's so popular and yeah. talk to people about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You've got to meet it on its own level. Um, So did you have I mean, did you have in your text for the class Did you have games that you recommended to the students? Did you have them play any games of significance? How was that built into? So what I've been doing, I had some technical problems this time, which was a real bummer. Um, I had a really good classroom last year where it's a technology classroom here on campus and the computer has a GTX 1060 in it. I was using my laptop in this classroom, so so my mileage varied. Um, <laughs> although it's amazing what a 2018 MacBook Pro can run. It's really quite astonishing. Uh, like games that four years ago I thought were kind of tough, that now these new laptops can run them. Like Sleeping Dogs is an example of that. Which Wow, really? Don't know, but yep. Yeah, I was very surprised wow. at how well it ran. Um, Sleeping Dogs is an open world, what at the time was kind of called a GTA clone, but it's set in Hong Kong. Um, and it's very clearly cinematically influenced by Hong Kong cinema. So we, we try and play stuff in class a lot so that I get someone, you come up and you control it and the rest of us will talk. We played Mark of the Ninja briefly to talk okay. about presentations of Ninja. Jamestown is one I love to show them. Do you know what that is? I do. Yeah, that is one of those kind of old arcade yeah. uh, style, uh, top down. Uh, I'm trying to think of the games that fall into the job, oh, but I do know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So yeah, it's a top down like Ikaruga, which is not one of the classic ones. That was an 
early 2000s reimagining, you know, 2D shooter, shoot 'em ups, shmups that sometimes are called. Um, mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, Jamestown is set in the New World, except the New World is Mars and the Martians, <laughs> the indigenous Americans have become Martians. And it's 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 a wild game. Wild. It's super cartoony and goofy and it doesn't it doesn't get weird. So we play things like that. And sometimes we improvise and throw stuff up there. I tend to show them Crusader Kings 2 just because it's not it's not easy to actually play. Last year, I had them do a playthrough of Civ. This time, we every year I do a playthrough of Colonization in class where all 15 to 20 people have to make the decisions together, you know. Mm, so great. you've been reached out to by the chief of the Cherokee. How do you respond? And they have to kind of vote and stuff. And, great. Yeah. And we get to kind of talk about what is colonization doing? Mm-hmm. It was controversial when it came out for a very, very small section of people. It would now be controversial for more people. Why is that? Um, so you do a lot of that stuff. The Wolfenstein games definitely feature. Um, and I'm happy to say there's just so many games now. You can bring all kinds of stuff in. Actually, Bob, we discussed, I had them watch um, the, the History Respond Never Alone episode. Oh, great. Um, they really liked that one more than Good. previous classes had. They really liked, they really appreciated hearing from hearing from your guest and him talking about this is what went into how I approached this game. They loved that. That was Good. great. That was Good. great. Yeah, that was one of my favorite episodes, primarily because we got into discussion about, um, you know, kind of Western archetypes just of storytelling, you know, the structure of how we tell stories and how video games kind of allow, you know, non-traditional or non-Western story traditions to kind of make some sort of, um, you know, headway to make some sort of influence on the player. Um, So I think that was was really fascinating. I'm glad to hear the students uh, found that useful. Um, I guess that kind of does it for my questions related to the class. Anything else that you kind of maybe thinking about changing in the future? Any other kind of general comments about your work? You know, something I've gone back and forth on, um, especially this year, was I'm very open to having them do basically a history respond episode next time like putting Mm. them in groups of two i don't think that they would have the bandwidth to do the game and do um the episode do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so um you know i'd be giving something up if we didn't do the game because they get a huge kick out of doing the game you Mm -hmm. know they really do they really like it and they really it's been a huge thing for me in my teaching to really see you know i just sent in an application for some funding for a new project where I'm, I'm hoping we're going to create like robots that take on the personas of historical figures and those goofy mm. stuff. And I want them to like use soldering irons and get into it. Cause I've seen it. I've seen it in the video games class and it hurts my, it hurts me deep in my historian soul that papers don't get them energized this way. Um, <laughs> but games, games totally do. And it, it's been very useful because they can give presentations that are basically kind of project updates. And mm-hmm. then I set up, I set up a kind of a mini E3 demo day where they have to be able to like explain to somebody new, this is our game. This is how it works. And so yeah. a lot of that skill stuff comes in. So I'd be giving up a lot. But then on the other side of it, if I fully embraced the, I want you guys to kind of be historically informed commentators on a game that could be fun. So I think that's my big thing. Next time I do it, I'll probably give it a rest now, kind of let it lie fallow for a year, but years from now that'll be the big question for me what do i do um but otherwise it's um like you know like a lot of teaching as you yourself know bob you stress about the content and everything else but if you're kind of if you're getting the if you're getting the results in the room where people are interested and they're excited and they're doing stuff you kind of you know the content can kind of fit around that if that makes sense it took me a long time to figure that out Um, But the video games class is at that point now where my main goal is how can i make sure they're excited every time and i don't yeah I don't forget what made it fun, you know? Yeah. I mean, because the excitement is what pushes them to basically teach themselves, right? Especially in the kind of group project right. uh, setting. 
Um, you know, I think it is it is kind of an issue. I mean, because the class that I taught at Louisiana Tech in the same sort of structure, I did have them basically write out, you know, their mm -hmm. kind of historical criticism right. of certain games. We had a list of games that they all played and they would write out a blog post about them. Um, but that seemed to work well because they were juniors and seniors and they had gone mm -hmm. through the yes. requirement courses. They had had world history yes. classes. Uh, if they were Americanists, they, you know, had American history classes, they'd gone through those hoops. And so mm -hmm. they were able to talk, you know, maybe not authoritatively, but, you know, they were able to cite mm -hmm. uh, different historical, um, uh, you know, uh, events and also uh, historiography to a limited extent. Uh, and so I just wonder, you know, if it is kind of a freshman year experience course, you know, how mm -hmm. that would work, because they don't they don't have uh, presumably have that same sort of grounding. Um, so, yeah, that is that is something to think about going yeah. forward. No, definitely. And even the confidence, you know, like especially yeah. here at Centre where it's a liberal arts college, so the classes are pretty small. So you're getting juniors and seniors and you can't shut them up, which is great. Like, that's what you want. You know, you, you want to hear what they think about the reading and stuff. And the first years, they're still like, this is just a side note as an educator. But, you know, I had a, a bunch of guys at the back of the room and they were kind of hanging out on this bench outside in the breaks. And I just thought, yeah, like high school guys do, like I did in high school. And it's <laughs> it's hilarious when you work in a college because by the time they're second years, they don't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of a funny little moment. It's the same phenomenon at Louisiana Tech. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, well, let's change focus uh, and talk about your recent playthrough of Red Dead Redemption 2. Now, mm -hmm. uh, we've already had some content uh, on our YouTube channel and then also in our podcast feed about Red Dead Redemption 2. We had a really good episode, for instance, with uh, Esther Wright uh, talking mm -hmm. about the game in detail, going through spoilers. But I, I wanted to turn to you because you've been playing the game. We've been texting about your playthrough <laughs> on yeah. and off, kind of uh, having debates, discussions about this. So now that you've finished the game, you've mm -hmm. completed the whole thing. And again, we are going to go into spoilers here. So fair yes. warning. Uh, what do you make of this as a game? And then also, what do you make of the history that's in the game? Okay. So, okay. Here. Okay. So <laughs> we've been talking and I, I, I think I liked the game more than you did, Bob. Um, at various moments, I found the game to be transcendent, like genuine, like this is what I want games to feel like. And there were moments where, you know, the authorial intent of Rockstar and of, uh, and of uh, Housen in particular is very present, mm -hmm. sometimes maybe overly heavily so for sure but it's very mm -hmm. present and when it works in my opinion it works and it is amazing and it is beautiful and i stayed and i watched the entire end credits and listened to all the music and i just kind of i just kind of i kind of drank in the end of this long story also i've been doing it for many weeks because i have kids now and i was playing it 30 minute chunks which i don't recommend um and it took me a long time and so i was kind of having a moment at the end of it um at the same time i really hate that game like a lot <laughs> it's like it's a really bad video game and it may be so, so give, angry. Me, give me specifics <laughs> i mean what is it that you dislike about the game as a I, video game I think so. And I was surprised at myself because I've always so I've always played GTA games and stuff and I've always liked them. And one of the things I've liked about them is what is kind of the classic GTA style. So if you said it before Red Dead 2. Oh, well, you know, there's these very kind of strictly um, there's me. There's going to be missions with strict parameters. You can do things a certain way. And I'm like, I was like, that's OK. I was like, I, I do all that. That's totally fine. You know, I can I can do that. Um but it really hit me this game harder. And I can't tell if the game's changed or I changed. 
for a wider question of you and you and I can talk about Bob, have games changed in a way that maybe this game doesn't quite reflect? So there was two things. One, the shooting stayed relatively fun, but it was kind of always the same thing, which is run up, you take cover, you press the left trigger to lock on, you move the right thumbstick up just a little bit, get them in the head and you press the button. And if you lose track of somebody, you take your finger off the lock on and put it back on the lock on and it'll just find somebody and know you're going and everything else. And maybe that could have been corrected in settings, but I don't have time for that kind of nonsense. The other <laughs> the other thing is like late in the like really late in the game, you're blowing up a bridge. And it's like, now move over here. Now pick this thing up. Press square to pick it up. Now drop it over here. Press this. And every mission was like that. And I was constantly getting reminders. Like one of my least favorite things about modern games is that the tutorializing goes on for hours. Mm-hmm. all of this game felt like a tutorial to me. Now, mm-hmm. that specific thing I know for a fact you can remove in the settings. I just didn't because I was nervous about missing something because they were just constantly doing things. Like, there's a moment in the game where, um, uh, you know, Arthur, you know, the protagonist, has been captured, and it's like, press left on the thumbstick to reach this candle. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I could have figured that out, guys. You know, like, and and again, maybe I could have turned it off in settings, but the whole thing was sure. beyond infuriating. And so what I found was these... At the start of the game, I just want to ride my horse around and play poker. Um, and as the game went on, I was just kind of trying to get through the story because as the st- as the game went on, the story grabbed me in ways I wasn't expecting it to. And it just felt like, oh, I guess I got to go and shoot these guys. OK. And I just wasn't enjoying that. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was I just thought it was bad. And so I've been in a very strange situation where Arthur Morgan's one of my favorite characters I've ever, ever played and I've ever encountered in a video game. Um, there are moments in this game that were just wonderfully well done. It was kind of an arrogant thing to do, but what they've done with the audio of the game is sensational, in my opinion. Including, like, when I say arrogant, I mean insisting on kind of getting the getting the lead singer of um, you know Queens of the Stone Age to to cover a Willie Nelson song and also mm-hmm. have the Willie Nelson version and all this stuff. So much of that stuff was amazing. But but so many parts of the game, I guess it just felt dated to me, Bob. I guess that's yeah. the only way I could describe it. Yeah, I you felt know? that, you know, you know, my kind of narrative comments are already on record with uh, Esther's episode, Esther Wright's episode for History Respawn. But, you know, in terms of gameplay, I feel yeah, the game feels dated. You know, it feels like yeah. a game that could have come out 10 to 12 years ago. Uh, in terms of mm-hmm. the mission structure, in terms of kind of the moment-to-moment action in the mm-hmm. game, you know, the shooting mechanic is essentially the same as it has been since uh, GTA 4, uh, which came right. out, I think, in 2008. Uh, oh, my The cover gosh. mechanic is the same. And the missions, mm-hmm. I mean, every mission, essentially, I'd say 96% <laughs> of the missions in the game are shooting galleries. And not only are they shooting galleries, they're also kind of almost on rail shooting galleries right you you are in an open world but the missions themselves don't often take advantage of the open world right they are essentially you know well we're we're robbing a bank uh we got to stay together as a group and then you're riding away together in a group right so you're kind Mm -hmm. of boxed in right it kind of it creates an artificial feel to a game that otherwise is incredibly open and that is really frustrating and like the giant bomb guys were talking about this in detail in their kind of end of the year discussion of the game. And I'm behind on that because I was waiting until I played the game <laughs> to listen to them talk about it. And um, like a lot of the missions start with you following somebody else while they talk to you over their shoulder. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and Brad Shoemaker was like, well, those are the best parts. Those are these great exchanges. And like, and I agree that they were well written, well acted, and they were great. But, and again, maybe I'm spoiled now by modern day games, but I couldn't just go off and do something else. Or what would happen a lot in Red Dead is you'd randomly crash your horse. And my favorite episode of this was, I, I, I was really trying to avoid it happening. It was this slapstick moment where despite my best efforts, I, cla- I clattered into some guy in his horse we both went flying off the horses as if they were motorcycles because the physics suddenly gets super weird the guy got really angry and um sadie who i was with shot them both dead right (laughs) we get on the horse and she goes you were saying which happens a lot of that game which is they're having this conversation something happens interrupted and they go anyway you were saying this happened when arthur's discussing you know how he had a son i'm like oh my god wait what he had a son, Jesus, and like I'm heartbroken and I'm upset. And then something happened to interrupt them. So anyway, you were saying, yeah, I was talking about my son. So anyway, and it was just these weird things. And maybe it's not Rockstar's <laughs> fault, but it just, it was just, it was so, such a strange thing. Yeah. But like you're saying, Bob, I think part of the reason I didn't have the experience is that things are, things are just different now. My expectations have shifted from where they were 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I feel the same way. I think it's a little bit that the game is in the past, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, in the past in terms of mechanics and level design and whatnot. Uh, but also we've changed, you know, we, mm-hmm. we now have, uh, you and I, for instance, probably have 15 years or so experience with open world or open world style That's right. games. That's right. And our expectations have just gone up. Right. Um, and it, it just shocks me. I, I don't want to, kind of stand here on my soapbox, but it shocks me to see so many perfect score reviews for this game. I just, I'm wondering if, you know, the critics out there are playing the same games I am because I look at this game and I feel like it's not really pushing the envelope very much uh, to use a jargony term, but it's not, it's not moving the medium forward in a way that I think, uh, you know, a perfect score game really should be. Yeah, and I, I and I'm a little surprised too because I feel like I feel like I really do feel the video game commentary and and discourse is is getting better, and I, and I don't just mean, oh God, at the risk of inviting a gross part of the conversation, it doesn't mean more progressive or more liberal because that's more palatable to me. Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely some of that for sure, but I think that it's getting better, and I I and I I'm surprised too because um. We should be in a place where we can say this is good, but, you know, and I think one of the things I think back to the very best piece of game writing I've ever read, which was Ian Bogost's review of Gone Home, um, which is still my favorite piece of writing video games ever. It was published in the Los Angeles uh, Review of Books and Mm -hmm. it is um, Times Review Books and it is it's in the state of play, the collection I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And he just talks about, you know. He does so. In a, he does. I'm not doing justice to it, but he basically says, "Listen, this game is being lauded for its story, and there are very real reasons it's being lauded for its story, and there are admirable reasons it's being lauded for its story. But you know what? Its story just isn't that good. Um, I think that when it's doing well, Red Dead, Red Dead Redemption story, is, Red Dead Redemption Two story, is complex. It is interesting. I think that it undercuts itself partly because of its video game ness." <laughs> not because video games naturally undercut good story, but because of this particular game undercuts it. But it kind of reaches out further. And so I wonder, have critics to an extent been intoxicated by that? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, but one of the one of the challenging things about writing with video games is you should be talking about the gameplay itself. Yeah. And I haven't come across that many critics who've said, gameplay-wise, this is a bit of a bit of a stinker. Yeah. Or at the yeah. very least, it's in stasis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and 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 people of like even the giant bomb conversation i i love those guys i'm huge fans of theirs they're my favorite video game commentators um i felt like one of them dan reichert was saying what we're saying and the rest of them kind of agreed with them but 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 made excuses for it that's kind of what happened you know (laughs) and i i think maybe it's because arthur morgan is a fascinating character and i think the game's high points are really really high yeah I, I think maybe that must be it. An interesting was said, Brad Schumacher had said this was not a game to play in 30-minute chunks. I just, you and I both have small kids. Neither of us were in a position to sit down for 12 hours and just get, just kind of belted out. Yeah. You know? I yeah. wonder if I'd had that opportunity, would I have had a different experience with the game? Mm. Um, that's an interesting, that's kind of an experiential question, I guess. But I, 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 don't, I don't know if I would, but I, I wonder. Because like when GTA 4 came out, I mean, I was in grad school. So, you know, I took... I took a week off my education GTA <laughs> 4. I made a wise decision of endangering that's, that's, my life. Yeah, like that's GTA graduate 4. school done right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but you, you can't do it when you have kids. It's just, yeah. you know, or it's, and I couldn't anyway, the way it worked out with my kids. So. Yeah. Well, so just briefly, I mean, what did you think of the historical elements in the game? What did you think of, you know, kind of the inclusion of historical groups, um, you know, historical tensions from that time? Yeah. Stood out to you? I think the big, um, how do I put this? I think that um, it's funny. So, sorry. I think thematically the game can be very strong in the sense the game is really concerned with where do we place the individual and the state? How do we, how do we rec- reconcile ourselves with, with criminality versus conformity? Yeah. And this is a longstanding theme in Rockstar's work. But something that they tried to do and were sometimes more successful than others in Red Dead Redemption 2 is acknowledge that it's terrible. Yeah. Like, like they didn't always do that in the Grand Theft Auto games. In Red Dead Redemption 2, they basically say, these guys are bad. And one of the things that was very fulfilling for me, actually, towards the end of the game was that, you know, at the start of the game, like, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of annoyed by this. Dutch is pretty charming. How does he become the antagonist of Red Dead Redemption 1? You know, he's basically a great guy. I feel like they're having their cake and eating it, too. I feel like by the end of the game, they largely say, no, criminality is bad and you shouldn't do it. Um, They can't always quite commit to it. So they have that classic rock star. What do you guys think about crime? Could you tell me? You know, because I'm not sure what you think. But this game does a better job than any of their previous ones and kind of going down that road. So I think thematically it can be very strong. The sense of a new era, the sense of the cowboy, the frontier giving way to a new America, to a corporate America. But again, it does undercut itself. Leviticus Cornwall is barely in the game. I was under yeah. the impression he's going to be in the in the thing from start to finish, and he's barely yeah. in it. Their treatment of indigenous Americans is... I don't know what to think of it. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I thought it was terrible, but it's, you know, it, it, it comes in a lot towards the end of the game. I'm like, oh, I guess we're talking about this now, and I just don't know how I felt about it. I'm sorry if people are listening going, wait, what's he talking about? I guess what I'm trying to say is that much like my enjoyment of the game overall, I see it go to these cool places and it doesn't always get there. Yeah. The real strengths I thought for the game were I really felt riding through the landscape, particularly in the northeast of the country early in the game, it felt like, you know, um, it felt like Ralph Waldo Emerson's America to me, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it felt like <laughs> it felt like that connection. You were having a transcendentalist moment there. Yeah. And Arthur Morgan himself as a character if you go in and start reading his journal, he's lamenting the passing of a naturalist America. And that actually works the further on the game goes. TB as a major plot point, which is like, yeah, how is this not coming up 
all the time in historical video game <laughs> to think of and this is we're in super spoiler territory here but like you know until relatively recently in human history you have tuberculosis all your doctor can say to you is well i hope you had a good run all the best you know yeah. Yeah. could be three days could be a month i just can't tell you yeah. um those moments were great i wish they and i'm only talking about my personal experience so if you're listening and you love the game i'm not trying to tell you you're 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 wrong because you're not wrong but in my personal experience i just i wish that had come together Mm. more i wish the whole was the sum of the parts it just didn't feel that way to me yeah and the first oh. redemption game did yeah. the first redemption i keep stumbling over the words i'm sorry the first rdr game i'll cheat felt more <laughs> cohesive despite being a, a very similar style of game what what about you bob i mean how you did you had a great episode on the pinkertons in particular oh thanks yeah great, well great content so far but what do you think well i i would agree in kind of the broad strokes i think in terms of history and i went into this with esther but uh, you know, briefly, I think in terms of history, it gets kind of a lot of the sensibility of the age uh, right. correct, right? You know, you've got the uh, passing of the frontier, you've got the emergence of, uh, you know, kind of gilded age capitalism, robber barons, uh, and then you've got groups like the Pinkertons, and, you know, recently the Pinkertons, who still exist, uh, have actually brought up a suit against uh, 2K and the developers Rockstar, about their depiction in the game, but you know, I would look at that, and you know, I did an episode on it. That depiction is pretty accurate, um, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of what they were up to. So, you know, there's elements in which they've done their homework. There's elements in which it feels realistic and authentic, which I think is really impressive because, you know, when you're talking about Rockstar, you don't really say the word authenticity very often, right? right? You know, right. it's kind of more tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic, uh, genre fiction, uh, and that was the first game. And it worked as a piece of genre fiction. Mm -hmm. This game, I think, attempts to be something more than that, but ends up falling back on kind of traditional tropes. And I think they're tropes that they're falling back on, not because narratively they don't want to go there. It's because they still have to make it a game that's fun to play. Right. And so yes. the elements yes. you're talking about with reference to, um, you know, story elements being broken up by having to shoot two emergent bad guys who just show up on the road. Right. That is the kind of gaminess coming in. And I'm wondering, you know, kind of going back to your like of the Ian Bogus piece, you know, is it possible to have a narrative that really mm -hmm. does everything we want in a game? I'm not sure if we've seen that yet. One of the strongest moments for me in the game, just in terms of a pure emotional reaction, is that and it's it, and this starts to happen more as the game goes on when they get back from Guarma, which is mm -hmm. like a Caribbean island. So there's this part in the middle of the game where you're kind of you're almost it's almost like a little um, sabbatical from the actual game you're in this new place you're doing new things and when you come back and you you get on the road and i would often put it in this um the scenic mode of, i forget what it's called and i would just hold the button so that he just followed the trail and i just kind of drink it in because I, I think the world they built was just beautiful and a song came on which doesn't always happen and it was it was it was almost a cinematic but it felt like we want you to ride along. It's nighttime. The song is playing. It, it, it will take roughly as long for you to get to where you're going as the song will to play. And we want you to feel a certain way. And it worked. And I really liked it. Mm. And I had a moment where towards the end of the game, I thought, you know, when I look back at the parts of the game I've enjoyed the most, I wasn't really doing anything except for like pressing a button here and there or even just like holding a button down. I wasn't even playing a game. <laughs> in those points and that doesn't bother me really um that part but that was a really um that was an interesting thing for me to think about do you know what i mean like mm -hmm. you know 
The parts I liked most about this game were arguably the most movie-like, which is something Rockstar gets dinged for sometimes. They're like their mm. desire to emulate cinema. But the more the closer they got to successfully emulating cinema, the happier I was. Um, <laughs> and that kind of gave me, like you say, that gave me kind of conflicted feelings because I believe very strongly games can move storytelling forward and everything else. But you know, how are they gonna how are they gonna do that? Um, and also, if this game is a failure, which you and I seem to be a bit of a minority report, but let's even if it was a failure, I kind of want more failures in games, you know, mm. um, or or I want more adventurous failures. I want to be able to admire people who tried something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and so these weird, um, those scripted moments. As much as the other scripted moments drove me crazy, some of the scripted moments just felt right and really got me into this sense of, as Arthur Morgan realizes that you know maybe he's just given himself over. Maybe it was the wrong path. It wasn't noble, but soiled. It was flat out wrong. And and for Arthur, he conflates that with the passing of a country he loves, a type of a country that's not going to be here anymore. It's like okay, this is working. This is sad. I feel sad. (laughs) (laughs) Arthur Morgan feels sad and I feel sad too. Um, But then I had to go and carry a barrel from point A to point B or, or, or anything involving Micah, who was one of my least favorite characters in the history of games, you know? Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, Bob, what did you make of the portrayal or the, the storyline around the indigenous Americans towards the end, the native Americans, because, um, well, I just want to hear what you think about it, because I don't know how I feel about it. And I, I'm not talking of like problematic versus not problematic. I'm talking like depictions and the kind of stories that we seem to be dwelling on with Native Americans. What did you think about that? Well, I would say in the broad strokes, I appreciated the fact that they were portraying the late 19th century struggle for Native Americans in a relatively realistic way in terms of working through the um, you know, because for the Native Americans, and this is depicted in the game, the frontier is over, right? They are in reservations, right. they are kind of corralled into these separate zones, and they are attempting to exercise their rights uh, within the federal government, within local governments, in order to protect what they have. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the actual narrative within the game of Arthur Morgan, I think that the whole Native American episode works to further Arthur's redemptive arc. Uh, Mm -hmm. primarily right that is kind of why they are there and it doesn't really dwell on what's going to happen uh to the native americans themselves and if it does it does so in the way that it kind of ends up making arthur feel sad everything is read through what arthur's perspective is right and his look at the native americans his role in their kind of uh, actions within the game uh, are all a part of attempting to make him reconsider his own life, but then also uh, as a way to make him feel sad about the passing of the frontier. So for, mm-hmm. I mean, for my opinion, it felt like Arthur was kind of looking at uh, the situation of Native Americans and he was equating that with, you know, kind of the destruction of the West in which he was lumping himself into, right? Right. This criminal, yes. this career criminal, lumping himself into the tragedy of mm-hmm. the end of the West. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. I'd say in the broad strokes, okay, you know, not mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the specific sense, it kind of ends up becoming, you know, another Dances with Wolves. <laughs> and I think I think a lot of the game kind of did things like that. I think that I thought Dutch was an incredibly strong character in the end as well. Um, like I said, I, I think they've succeeded more than ever before in delving into how to associate individualism and a kind of a kind of frontiersmanship with you know, does this have a place in a new kind of society? But uh, they, just, they they certainly didn't crack it, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
One more thing I'll say about the game as well, Bob, and this really struck me at the very beginning of the game, which is very highly structured and you're in these snow-capped mountains and everything, is that just as a technical achievement, the sound of the game, the way the game looks, and their success in creating a world that feels, I suppose, real, is it's unprecedented. It's In my opinion, it's it's so good. And to create this landscape and to create these places that really make you feel this is something I want to engage with. And this is this is a history beyond a sociological history or a political history or even a cultural history. This is an attempt to slowly move towards a history of a place in all its fullness. Um, again, it, it doesn't reach all those areas, but despite my incredibly conflicted relationship with the game, I could totally see myself going back in a couple of weeks after I've had a break and uh, and doing some more riding around. Like I think of mm-hmm. one of my favorite moments in the game is when Arthur is uh, riding a carriage full of suffragettes who are just chanting kind of suffragette um, chants on their way to the train station to protest. And for that brief 45 seconds, I was like, this is great. This They built something really special here. And so if you if you play games and you have a platform the game is available on, particularly once it starts to go on sale and stuff, even just to get a sense of that world, I, I do think it's worth it, despite all the issues that I had with the game. Mm. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today's episode of History Respawn. Uh, my thanks to John for doing all of the heavy lifting uh, in this episode. Uh, my thanks also to our patrons uh, who continue to support History Respawn after five years of work. If you enjoy our work at History Respawn and are interested in supporting us, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. This podcast and much of our YouTube content would not exist without patron support, so please consider giving us what you can. Uh, That's all for today's episode. Until next time, goodbye.